is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Michael Baldwin a luxury real estate agent who made a lucrative living in Texas until the financial crisis of 2008 temporarily derailed his career. Ever the optimist, Michael decided to use the opportunity to live abroad and set about speed dating all the international destinations within a four-hour flight of Houston. Ultimately, it was Los Cabos, Mexico that stole his heart. In this episode, Michael shares the story of road tripping down the Baja California Peninsula to start a new life in San Jose del Cabo and why he's never looked back. Plus, we discuss Michael's ethos of turning lemons into lemonade, the logistics of setting up a new life in Mexico, and why the local community is what really makes a place feel like home. This episode is sponsored by Los Cabos, the Mexican destination where you can have it all and more. You're going to hear loads of tips and recommendations over the next hour, so have your notes app open and ready. Well, I guess we'll just jump in. It's so nice to meet you. Great meeting you. I usually like to begin by asking, uh, where did your love of travel originate? That's a really interesting question. You know, I grew up very middle class in, in northern Indiana on a farm. And so I wasn't exposed to a lot of travel. So I guess the absence <laughs> makes your heart grow fonder. So the lack thereof made it important to me as I was able, you know, financially. And as you get a little older, you, you know, things change. You have, you know, your economics change. And uh, I went to Purdue and I met a lot of people from the Chicago area. It kind of opened up my mind. You know, when you grow up on a farm in northern Indiana, you have a very, very, very uh, finite view of the world. But as I went to college, you know, part of the college experience is enlightenment. And enlightenment met, uh, I met other people, my roommate, his dad was the president of the Purdue Research Foundation, and they had a home in Vero Beach, Florida. And so we would drive from West Lafayette, Indiana to Vero Beach, Florida, and uh, stay at her parents' house for the weekend. So that was kind of the beginning. And I, I, I love a good road trip. So and maybe that's the origins of all that is I love driving, you know, the Americas, as you know, I mean, I don't know how much travel you've done in the US, but it's quite a diverse country and very beautiful and, and different in all parts. Uh, even Brooklyn, you know, you can find <laughs> beauty in Brooklyn. But I think that I think that would be the, the best answer to that question is just, the older you get and the more inquisitive and the more you're exposed to, the more you want. Absolutely. I just did a four-month road trip across the country last year, which was amazing. And I went to Indiana Dunes Park. Way north. That's just, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to do. Yeah, it is beautiful. And it's, and it's relatively unknown. Most people, mm -hmm. I mean, people from Chicago and the region know it well, but people from other parts of the country are so unfamiliar with even Michigan, the, you know, the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan, if you ever get a chance to go there is magnificent, really, really beautiful. So yeah, there's a lot of corners to, to the Americas and, and you got to get in all of them to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. We stumbled across the dunes because I think I was looking for somewhere to stop for lunch and like take our dog for a walk. And then we came across it and I was like, this is beautiful. And not, it was pretty empty and you could bring your dog on the beach. And 
It was great. I still can't believe that that's a lake and not the ocean. <laughs> lake just, Michigan, you know, it's mind blowing. The Great Lakes um, are are pretty special. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I know that you lived in Houston for a while. I did thirty years. How did you end up there? Well, another uh, great adventure was I, like I said, I went to school at Purdue, and again, my roommate. You know, it always kind of goes back to other people influencing you, and so. You know, he talked me into moving to Houston, which is a thousand miles away. Between our sophomore and junior year in college, we lived in Houston one summer and worked construction. Again, my, you know, my my tunnel vision just kept getting wider and wider. And and at the time, Houston was about a city of maybe four million. It's probably doubled its population in the last thirty years. But back then, it was a the long before your time. But in the late seventies. There was an oil embargo, and Jimmy Carter was president, and the and the country was going through a real transition. It was it was moving away from heavy industry, steel. Uh, the oil embargo created very similar to these times today, very high gas prices, and so Houston and Texas in general was booming. So, and the steel and the and the plants in the Midwest were shutting down. So. Everyone was exiting the Midwest and moving to Texas, and I was one of those of the great migration. Lived there a summer, fell in love with it, big city, and as soon as I graduated, I immediately went back to Houston. That's that's you know where I started my my work career was in Houston, and I was there right up until 2010 when when we left and and came to Cabo. So I was there 30 years. I I built three businesses. I sold two of them to my partners. And then the last one was a victim of the 2008 crash. Yeah. So you, you were in real estate back then. I was a home builder and land developer. I still, my whole life is, has been uh, evolved around home building, land development. Of course, everything has to be sold. So when you're an entrepreneur, you know, if you're building something, nothing happens until somebody else buys it. So, so you get this deep understanding of well, dealing with the public, understanding their needs and wants, and and so you know, it just kind of came natural. I was I was never the natural born salesperson, but uh, you know, it's it's kind of a requirement to be successful as an entrepreneur. So, uh, yeah, I was there all my life, uh, my adult life. And when the collapse happened in 2008, my partner and I had 72 employees, and we had $150 million worth of homes. Half of them were sold, half of them were on spec. And so, you know, we had 72 employees. It was a big company, and it took me a year to close it down. And and there was just nothing happening in Houston. It was really my first setback. I'd kind of had this trajectory of always being successful. And it's really interesting that life isn't that way. You know, I mean, it's not a straight line from, you know, from the bottom to the top. There's a few stops and sometimes the elevator goes down. And at the time, it was really interesting because, I mean, it seemed like the end of the world, you know, when you, you've spent half your life building this company and you have to close it. You know, it was it was not an easy thing for my ego to have to go through that. But in, in hindsight, and you're a young person, so this is, this is good insight for you, is that in hindsight, I would have never left Houston had that not happened. And so to have kind of a restart, which seemed 
daunting and problematic and you know hard to overcome ended up being the best possible thing that could have happened out of the fire comes you know the rebirth of the phoenix and so there there is life after failure so i mean that's there's a little parable in there somewhere mm-hmm. when one door closes another door opens as they say <laughs> and it's it is true and and it's hard to see that at the moment i mean you, you can't see past a few days or a few weeks uh but to my only regret now is I didn't leave sooner, but I did move to Cabo sooner. And like I said, that would have never came on the radar had, had that not happened. So in a way, it's a blessing. So what was the, the discussion like with your wife when you were really figuring out that, you know, you weren't going to get your business back on track and that you needed to start a new chapter? Well, it's, uh, I remember it very, very well. And in fact, it wasn't my wife. It was my girlfriend at the time. Stephanie, who we are now married, uh, we had just met. And so she, you know, she kind of saw two sides of me, which was this super successful entrepreneur, you know, and then working through all of this, uh, all the problems, both, you know, lawyers, bankers, you know, getting everybody paid off. And, and so I had just met Stephanie. And uh, the good news for me was that uh, that obviously didn't matter to her. And that, you know, being with me was more important than the money or the cars or the houses or whatever. So, and, and I knew in, in, that it wasn't going to come back immediately. I mean, because the banks, you know, I, I was in a highly leveraged business. I mean, you build $150 million with houses, the bank loans you the money, basically. So when the bank stopped loaning money, it was, you know, evident that we couldn't go back to work right away. So the choices are, A, go get a job, which I'd, I had had a job in 20 years. Uh, B, try to start another company in the face of uh, not being able to borrow, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were, we were, we were spending a lot of time watching TV at home or whatever. And we, we watched an episode of House Hunters International, HGTV. I don't know if you've ever seen this and, you know, it, there's this kind of this light bulb went off my head that, you know, hey, if we're going to rebuild and, and restart something, why don't we choose where we want to be and go to work there, you know, go to work building something, anything. And, and as, as a serial entrepreneur, number one, you think you can do anything, you know, even after a failure, you know, I hadn't lost my confidence. And, and I always say you could drop me in the jungle of Cambodia. And, you know, when you came back a few years later, I don't have the town. And so I was like, you know, I can do that. So we actually just started, she was a political fundraiser at the time working. And so we said, well, I'd always want to live on the beach. You know, we were both beach people. And so we started looking for uh, the next next possibility. So, and so we said, okay, four hour flight time from Houston. So if you just draw a circumference of a four hour flight time, that takes you all the way down to South America, to like Aruba, Caracas, um, is inside of that four hour flight time. So literally, I packed my bags and I went to every single island, every place inside of that. So I, I'm a, a traveler of anything Caribbean. You know, we, we thought it was going to be like the Bahamas or something uh, on that side. We really, you know, Cabo hadn't, I've been coming to Cabo since 1988, but 
never contemplated that we could live here because of the language. You know, you think of English speaking places is the Caribbean. You know, they pretty much all speak English there. So we were focused on the Caribbean just because of language. And I'm kind of a uh, analytical person by nature. So, you know, I had this big spreadsheet, which I wish I still had it today, that had every place I went and all the different categories from medical, currency, language, you know, all the different things that would be a criteria for contemplating a move, a permanent move. And so literally spent the next, I don't know, two to three years uh, traveling to all of those destinations. And that was a very interesting experience because you look at it through the lens of not, is it a great vacation place and it is, is it great for a weekend or seven days or two weeks, but what would it be like to live there full time? And so you immediately look through a different lens at, at all the resort places because many of them are not suitable for full-time residency. I mean, their infrastructure is, is you know, whether it be internet or TV or roads or airports or, you know, because you actually, if you live there, you know, you've got to be able to survive and get around and be transported because like my parents are still alive. I mean, I'm an older gentleman, but my parents, you know, it was important that I could be able to get back to the U.S. and, and her family was from Houston. So, you know, that that was uh, important that we were able to to get back to the U.S. And so it was, you know, really, really interesting. So anytime you want to talk about the Caribbean, I'm, I'm your guy. You're I've the been expert. Pretty much, I've been to every single place. I mean, literally. And and uh, and we looked hard at the Bahamas. Um, and there were reasons that I'll keep to myself why we didn't choose that. But uh you know, that's that was it was a summary of all of those trips that concluded that Cabo was the right combination. And and it wasn't easy to move to a country where we didn't speak the language. So that was a very, very hard step. And interesting. And, uh, so you kind of you were speed dating all of these different places, essentially. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So it was it was a great experience. And I'll always and that I, I think that uh, I in a word, it was adventure, but it was an adventure of a lifetime. You know, here I was 52 years old. So I was, you know, no, no, I wouldn't say I was a young man, but, you know, getting on the plane and contemplating a whole new restart somewhere foreign uh, where you knew no one uh, was exciting. I mean, it really was. And, and Stephanie would agree. And, and is, it was the best time of our lives was going through this research and and picking a place that that was exotic and exciting and new and and limitless possibilities. We never really thought of, I guess, any of the bad things um, because we're both super optimistic people. And and she went along with it, which is we weren't even married at the time; we were just dating. And so we, when we, after we moved to Cabo, we got married in uh, Cabo, Mexico in 2011. We moved here in 2010 and we got married in 2011. And, you know, it's kind of the happily ever after, you know, story. I love that. I love that you turned lemons into lemonade and just started a whole new chapter. Once you decided on Cabo, Mm -hmm. what was it like logistically for you to figure out, you know, how to move that, how to pack up? which route to take? How did you put, bring all the threads together and make the plan? Well, 
we, we've been only coming by air travel. You know, I mean, we'd only come by plane before. And we actually came down and rented a place for a couple of weeks just to kind of, like you said, try to get an understanding of logistics and, and how were we going to do this and, and how were we going to overcome the language? I mean, that the language issue was the single biggest thing that concerned us. But most people, in, have you been to Cabo? I have not yet. Oh, my you list. need to. It is it is an amazing place, and 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 English is spoken, although in the most odd places it's not. So in the resort areas, you know whether they're the hospitality people are all English speaking, but when you go to like a bank or the gas station or the dry cleaners, they don't speak a word of English. So it, it's kind of the tale of two cities. Uh, you are in Mexico, you're in a foreign country, but but they do speak a lot of English. So uh, we kind of set about, and this is kind of a funny story, is that Cortez, uh, which was a Spanish explorer, discovered the Baja. And one of the things that he did, and I always tell this story because it was kind of us, is that you know he was afraid his men would, would uh, mutiny and leave because it was pretty desolate. You know, I mean, just landing on the, on the it's North America, but the peninsula is, is very desert-like. And so when Cortez arrived, he burnt the boats so they couldn't leave. And so I always say, use that as analogy is that we sold everything. When we, when we decided to leave, house, cars, clothes, I mean, and let me tell you, it was the most liberating thing I've ever done in my life because you have, you carry the stuff around with you all your life. Now, I mean, you've moved continent to continent. So maybe you haven't accumulated as much crap that most people do over their lifetime, but you'd be shocked how much stuff you drag around that is really kind of meaningless. And, and, you know, I had the, the Armani suits and I had a closet full of beautiful clothes and a, and a garage full of beautiful cars and, and a big house. And so there was a lot of stuff. And when you think about you know, you're going to make this move and everything you're going to take with you is going to fit in this car. We, we had a little Mercedes SUV, an ML, and you're all that you're going to take with you has got to fit in that car. And it was really pretty funny because we, we sold the house, we sold the cars, we sold the clothes, we sold the furniture, we had like yard sales. And at the end, we were just like giving, giving stuff away that uh, we couldn't sell because we obviously we weren't going to um, keep it. And we were going to certainly not going to take it with us. And I remember when we were packing the car to now it's a 2,700 mile trip from Houston to Cabo. Okay. So that's a fun, that's a fun trip too. And when we were packing before we were ready to depart, my then girlfriend, Stephanie, my wife now, uh, she, she likes to keep her, uh, very expensive shoes in the shoe boxes. And she was literally shoving the shoe boxes in the back of this car. We were supposed to depart. And I'm like, Whoa, whoa. I said, I'm not driving 3000 miles and I can't see out the back with your Jimmy Choo shoes in their pristine boxes. I said, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so we literally had to delay our departure the next day and we had to get a storage unit i'm like we're not taking all of this stuff i mean the shoes she, stayed behind <laughs> the shoes stayed behind that's exactly right so 
that was the uh, upon the departure. That was a funny little story. Is that uh, and she still laughs about it today because she remembers it because she was she was kind of exhausted. I mean, we'd gone through a lot of you know just cleansing, and she was kind of determined to not let you know her shoes go or whatever. That was the line it's, for her. That, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So everybody has a line now. Since then, she's you know accumulated all those shoes and boxes once again. But uh, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Her her shoving those shoes in the back of that car. And uh, so we delayed our uh, departure and off we went. We left Houston. That was, I think it was, and it's really interesting when I was going back and kind of trying to remember dates and times, it was October 10th of 2010. So 10, 10, 10 was well there must be something that to feels that, like a you know? good omen yeah <laughs> exactly and, and i never thought about it until the you know trying to prepare for this interview that we departed houston on 10 10 10 and uh it, that was started the journey of uh and it's it's texas is a big state you've been to texas yes i went to oh. on this particular trip martha and uh, that, you're gonna love this story then. Are, you, are you did you go to west texas we stayed at the Gage Hotel, oh. which is Marfa is right now. I think it's Marathon, Texas, which mm-hmm. you would probably go through. I don't know. How did you get to Marfa? Did you fly? No, we drove the whole thing. So we did like we started in New York, drove all the way back. So, yeah, we would have we would have driven in past the Prada store. <laughs> yes, we, we, we saw that as well. But we made that drive. I mean, that's the first the first leg of the trip was the depart. We had friends that owned the Gage Hotel, which you should you know, Google that if you're ever, you're never going back to Marfa probably. <laughs> but if you ever get to Marfa, you want to stay at the Gage Hotel. And they're friends of ours that own this historic hotel. And that was our first stop. And which is, and they, they actually live in Marfa. So we, we had dinner in Marfa. And we saw the Marfa lights. And we saw the Prada store. And so it's just like every day was like that. You know, you get up, you get in the car and, you know, off you go and, and you don't know what's coming next. And uh, that's the part of travel that is is the unknown and the excitement of what is going to happen. So, yeah, we drove all the way across Texas to El Paso, went up through uh, southern New Mexico and Arizona. And I want to I want to tell you a little story which ended up being, uh, I guess, in the end, super interesting to me is that do you, have you ever heard of the Gadsden Purchase? You probably don't know your U.S. history. I'm yeah, shamefully ignorant about quite okay. a lot of well, it. I'll, I'm I'll give you the quick story. Is okay. That, uh, Christopher Gadsden was an American revolutionary, and and you may have seen a yellow flag with a green serpent, and it says oh, "Don't yeah. tread on me." It's on every naval ship in the U.S. Navy. And so it, that he was a revolutionary, and of course, no offense to you, of course, but you know the American Revolution, you know, you know <laughs> what happened there, right? <laughs> but Christopher Gadsden was one of those guys, and he went on to—I don't know if he signed the Declaration of Independence, but he was a, he was a major involvement in Charleston, South Carolina. He financed the Civil War. And the and so Christopher Gadsden, the Gadsden family runs through American history from, you know, the 1700s. And then he went on to finance the South during the Civil War. He was from Charleston, South Carolina. He was a very, very successful entrepreneur. He financed the Civil War. And they you know how that turned out for the Southerners. They lost and they immigrated to Mexico. OK, so you see where this is going. 
Well, the Gadsden purchase was uh, James Gadsden, and the U.S. purchased what is south of I-10 in New Mexico and Arizona, and uh, the U.S. purchased that. And so, and that was for the Southern Pacific Railway. Okay, now I'm going to tell you where this is all going. When we moved to Cabo, one of the very first people we met and are still best friends have become my, my he, he is basically my travel guide in Mexico, is a guy named Mario Gadsden. And wow. he's a direct descendant of the Gadstons. And he's our neighbor here in, in our neighborhood. And we became great friends, instant friends. He's very charming. I mean, you can imagine this guy is very handsome. He's a very, movie star, good looks, um, great family. And he's been my travel guide inside of Mexico. We're now traveling all over Mexico. And he insists that, that he take us. So uh, because he's so proud of his country and he wants to introduce us to, and we've gone to San Miguel, Mexico City, Catatero, all these places he's taken us personally. Um, wow, that's a really he's such good a connection. He's a proud Mexican. And it's yeah. funny that his his ancestors are from, and they're probably British, they're probably <laughs> English, you know, to start with. So I don't know. Well, I've never looked. I, actually, now I'm going to see where uh, Christopher came from to when he made it to the new world. So there's that's probably something. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that, so the, that making that trip, I don't know, that's a long story to uh, New Mexico and Arizona is I 10 was the Gadsden purchase. That was what was purchased um, from Mexico um, was Southern New Mexico and Arizona. So that was our route is that we went up to Scottsdale, stayed at Camelback, and then up to neither one of us have ever been to um, Palm Desert, Palm Springs. And so the next night we stayed in Palm Springs, which it, it wasn't what I expected. I mean, I, I had this romantic idea about what it was going to be. And it was when we got there, it was a bunch of old people and they closed the restaurants at seven o'clock. And uh, we were expecting something entirely different, being a suburb of L.A. and the history, the rich history with. Sinatra and the Rat Pack and everything. So um, it was, it wasn't what we expected, Palm Springs. And then you made your way on down to Mexico. To San Diego. That was our last night that we stayed is in San Diego before we crossed the border. And back in 2010, there was a lot of, you know, El Chapo, I think was still around. And there was a lot of uh, border crossing issues. And there was some violence at the Mexico-American border towns. And so we spent our last night in San Diego. So our, our theory was that we wouldn't cross in Tijuana, that we would cross at a, a small town called Tecate, which there's a beer. I don't know. I was about I don't to know say, like the beer. Uh, it is. It is. It, it <laughs> I like, is like beer. the beer. It is, it is good beer. It's good. And so we had to drive about 30 minutes out of our way to cross from California into Mexico at Tecate. And so my theory was that if we got up very, very early and we you know, would, would cross at first, first light, you know, eight o'clock or so, that the banditos would still be sleeping from the night before. Uh, so that was, that was our plan. And so we, we crossed and there was, there was no customs, there was no immigration, there was, no, there was hardly even a stoplight. We just entered the country w with nothing. And so we, uh, we had to make our way down to Ensenada to actually clear customs because there was nobody to stamp our passport or, um, and it was a, just a tiny little town. And, and the, the most interesting part of that is the journey of the Baja 
And that's a trip you have to take if you love a good road trip. And, you know, I know you must love travel to do what you're doing is driving the Baja from San Diego to Cabo is a trip of a lifetime. That that was the best part of all of the drive. And and it's because it's just so interesting. And it's as if you go back. I mean, you could be in a, a covered wagon, you know, I mean, it's, we were in the front of a Mercedes, but, but driving the Baja, there's, there's, I think the total population, and I don't quote me on this. I think the total population of the Baja can't be much more than a million people. And it's a thousand miles long and probably 90 miles wide. And so there's nobody, there's no people. You can drive for hours and days and not see another person. And the, the scenery changes about every 200 miles because down the middle of the Baja are mountains, which you don't think of. I mean, everybody thinks of the ocean. Uh, so you have the Pacific on the west, the Sea of Cortez on the right, and this peninsula that is right down the middle is this mountain range. And so there's only one highway between San Diego and Cabo. There's only one road. Um, and it zigzags back and forth between the Pacific over these mountain ranges. And so the topography and the beauty of the Baja is, is really, really, really special. And, you know, there's very few places in the world, I guess the Middle East maybe, but the, that has the desert next to the sea. You know, many places in the Mediterranean would, would probably be reflective of that. But most, most places are tropical. You know, I mean, if you go to Polynesia, Hawaii, you know, all those places, they're, they're you know, the, the, the landscape is different than Cabo. It's, it's, it is the desert next to the ocean, which is really pretty special. Sounds amazing. And I know you stopped in a, a little town that you became enamored with called Loreto. Loreto. We actually stayed for several days. That was the good thing is that we didn't have a time. We, we actually allowed ourselves two weeks, but we were always so anxious to get to the next destination we wanted to get to mexico that we never stay in the u.s we never stayed more than a night but when we started coming down the baja you know our whole attitude changed you know it, it's really is i don't know how to describe but it's it's so remote and it's so virgin you know like nothing has changed in you know millions of years except they put this road down the middle of it that it, it's just a the just seeing the, the the stars at night because there's no light it, the stars just jump out of the sky and the the air is so clean and so is all the water when you when you're driving down the baja there's a place just south of Tijuana maybe it's a few hundred miles called uh, Gordo Negro and it's these big salt flats and that's where the whales calve and so that there's this big bay that because the salt, the salt content is so high, it allows them to be buoyant. Okay, so they're, they're, they float. I mean, all this evolution, there is something to evolution. There's a reason why things happen the way they do. They're, they're just not random, but it's a salt flat. And so the salt content is so high in the bay that allows them to be buoyant. And so they, that's where they calve. Because they're, they're, I don't know, their calves are, I don't know how much they weigh, like several hundred pounds. And then they, I think they double their weight every few days. So it's it's uh, pretty interesting. So that is a place to see, to whale watch, to 
to connect to the whales that come, that migrate. Every year they go from Alaska to Cabo and back to Alaska. It's a 12,000 mile journey every year. And so it's just, it's a whale highway. I mean, the whales are going both directions all the time. So, but that's Gordon Negro. And then Loretto is probably another, probably a day drive from Gordon Negro to Loretto. And, and the Baja is one of the few places you actually have to plan your trip because of fuel station. You know, you, you think you take for granted that, you know, in, in the U S you could never run out of gas. I mean, there's, there's never a place where you have, you couldn't go from point to point without, without refueling. But when we first started, I think Pemex has built a lot of gas stations since, but uh, there were times when you had to plan your fuel stops because there's nothing between there's in hundreds of miles of nothing. And you don't want to get caught in the desert in that heat. You'd be in the middle of nowhere with uh, broken down. So yes, Loreto is a uh, coastal town on the Sea of Cortez and its population is I don't know what it is today, but at the time it had to be five, six thousand people. So it's a it's a very small town in the middle of nowhere. And we just kind of fell in love with that place. And we had a, a beautiful hotel room. It was one of the nicest quality rooms. You know, my wife's in the thread count and you know, she loves a good hotel bed. Um, and we just, we just kind of fell in love with the place and we just hung out there. I think we stayed there two or three nights and before we, you know, felt motivated to get back in the car and head toward Cabo. And then you arrive at your final destination, Cabo San Lucas. Yeah. And, you know, since you'd been doing all the speed dating of all these places and you'd settled on this particular town, this particular city. When you arrived, were you reminded of all the things that made it so special in the first place? For sure. And and the thing, you know, it's really interesting because I'll go back to the conversation about all the analytics that you do. You know, we, we looked at medicine and currency and all those things. And at, at the end, when we arrived and we were there, we, we, we rented a place for six months in San Lucas, which we... That was all we knew was Cabo San Lucas. And we came to to find out that San Jose del Cabo, which is about 20 miles away, is the place that you want to live. But we we rented a place for six months. And so we just had fun. We went I went to the beach every day. I was fishing and golfing and we were partying at night. And, you know, after all that analytics, travel, analysis, all those things. What we realized was the best part were the people, the local people. And that was that was that solidified our decision because that was that was what was wrong with a lot of places is that we wouldn't want to have lived there, you know, with the pop with the local population. I mean, they're they're not as open and they're not as genuine and they're not as uh, you know, what I'm saying, I mean, Mm -hmm. different places in the world, you, you either feel like they're heartfelt and loving and take you in. And that is the warmth and culture of, and I, I say Mexican people in general, um, everywhere we've traveled inside of Mexico, we've felt the same thing, that the people were receptive to what we were all about. I mean, here we are, we're foreigners, we're a guest in their house and they treat us 
like royalty. And there's not many places in the world like that. Relax your mind, body and spirit in naturally open spaces or set off in search of fast-paced adventures. In Los Cabos, you can have it all and more. Luxury villas just steps from the beach. Luxurious, all-inclusive resorts that look out over emerald green golf courses and endless views of the crystal clear Sea of Cortez are just the beginning. Find a special offer and get more out of your getaway at visitloscabos.travel forward slash featured dash offers. That's visitloscabos.travel forward slash featured dash offers. As somebody who no longer lives in her home country and you know, lives in the States now, I think it's so important when you move to a different country that you can build a sense of community because if you don't have community, you don't have Doing anything. Yeah. I agree. I mean, and that, but, but it took all of that three years, 3,000 <laughs> miles, you know, selling everything to, to learn that, you know, I mean, for me anyway, it, it, that was what immediately became apparent that it's, it's all about people. And, and that's what we love most about it still, you know, it's been now 11 years going on 12 years later, that it's, it's the people. And my wife is, feels the exact same way. I mean, she, she loves it here. Oftentimes, are you married? Yes. Okay. Oftentimes, you don't always have the same sense. I mean, you you may like something and he might may like something else. But, you know, that is one thing we certainly both came to the same conclusion and, and feel the same today that, you know, we we just love, love the people. The, the culture of Mexico is food, family you know, all those things that you are easily forgotten. And and the thing that they taught us most is that no matter, they're, they're the happiest people in the world and they have nothing, you know? I mean, Americans are the worst. I mean, you know, they're, they're all about consumption and it's the nicer car, the bigger house. I mean, you're just on this, you know, treadmill of consumption and you realize that the, the happiness doesn't come from all that stuff. And that's why I said it was a liberating to get rid of it. B amazing to come to a place where nobody cared what you drove, nobody cared what you wore. Nobody, I mean, the fact flip flops and t-shirts and swimsuits was was like the uh, uniform, you know. So there's no judge, there's no judgment, there's no, you know, there certainly is different levels of of how you live, but they don't see it that way. They don't do it. They don't see it through that lens. I mean, they're super welcoming into their home. They're generous. So we've learned from them in the final analysis, you know, I'm not a young man. I mean, I've, I've lived a couple of lifetimes actually, but that's what we, that's our takeaway is, is, is just the generosity and the warmth of the people and how much they share of themselves and they would give you their shirt off their back and then probably the only shirt they own they would give it to you yeah i mean i haven't spent nearly enough time in mexico i went to tulum in 2013 for my honeymoon which was very different then as <laughs> the location yeah. than it oh, is now it's changed a lot yeah but i'm dying to get over to the west coast um so for someone like me who hasn't been to los cabos before can you kind of paint us a picture of what makes it so amazing? Well, I mean, first off, the weather. We have we have nine months of perfect weather. And perfect weather 
by my definition, is 80 degree high, 60 degree low, you know, maybe at the worst case, maybe 40, 50% humidity. So it's dry because it's the desert. And because it's the desert, there's no bugs. Like that's the problem with a lot of tropical places is when you're in the tropics, you have bugs, you have snakes, you have spiders, you have all that stuff. We don't have any of that. I mean, we uh, we have very much indoor outdoor living. We we throw all our doors and windows open day and night, um, and things aren't flying in or you know ruining. So I, I would say that the combination, uh, the weather, is pretty special, and and that's what people look for. You know, I mean, they chase the weather. If you if you observe, you know, wealthy people and how they travel, they chase the weather, right? So, I mean, and, and weather by definition, maybe you want to snow ski or maybe you want it cool, but nobody's vacationing in Houston, Texas. OK, because it's awful. I mean, the weather is is awful every day. I mean, uh, and I lived there for 30 years. Um, so so I think that weather is is a big part of it. And it's interesting because if you if you look at a globe, we're on the Tropic of Cancer. And if you just you get a globe out and, and go around the world with the Tropic of Cancer, and it's some of the most amazing places in the world are on the Tropic of Cancer. And so, and we share that. And it's, it may sound crazy, but that, and I think it's the way the sun uh, and moon and stars hit the earth. Uh, there's like an ultraviolet, um, some, some kind of a spectrum in color that, the the blues are bluer you know the ocean here is it takes on it reflects the light and so it's although it's very very deep unlike the bahamas which is beautiful water it's it's more a darker blue here where it's more of a green color in the bahamas so the ocean is super abundant in marine life which doesn't happen many places still in the world I many places are overfished but here, you know, it's the marlin fishing capital of the world. There's a lot of diving. And I think that there's so many activities because Cabo is one of the few places in the world you can surf year-round. And if you think about that, there's a lot of surfers in the world, particularly from Australia. But in the summertime, you, you surf on the Sea of Cortez. In the wintertime, you surf on the Pacific side. There's just so many things to do. You know, you never get bored. And the reason we chose it is because of the food and the wine. The food is all organic. Uh, the fish is always fresh. The Mexico wine country, you know, that's a, don't, that's a whole other topic for me. I mean, I'm all about wine and Mexico. You don't think of Mexico as a big producer of wine, uh, but they are. And it's, it's quite delicious. So, so it's the food, everything is about food and wine and margaritas, of course, but that's, that's a lifestyle that we embrace. Um, we're all about drinking and eating. And so I guess another question I have is that as somebody who's moved internationally, I know that it can be a very complex process. So how did you navigate stuff like, you know, getting your visa sorted and figuring out were you allowed to just buy a property or how did that stuff work you know just all of those logistical things the short answer is there are people you just pay you pay to have it done i mean this country is very service oriented and there's and it 
they're mostly Americans here. And so they need all the immigration, work visas, all those things are kind of baked into to their DNA to provide those services because Americans are going to need it. And they've created a little cottage industry out of doing all that for you. So I will tell you that the other thing about living in Mexico is that you really, everything is done for you at a price. I mean, you pay for the service, but they are very service driven and they, they understand that, that Americans, I don't know if I can say that we're, we're, uh, we like things to be done for us. We like convenience. Americans like convenience. Okay. So, so they're, they've reduced uh, all the friction. There's, there's grease, you know, and no friction. So it, it's, you have to do all this. I mean, we had to get a work visa. We had to get our, we are, we are permanent uh, residents is, is our status here. I'll probably never become a citizen. It's really, there's really no advantage, you know, being a U.S. citizen that doesn't pay necessarily to have a Mexican passport. Um, but we're permanent residents. We're expats from the U.S. So that's a whole nother topic on taxes. America is one of the few countries in the world that you still have to pay taxes, whether you live there or not. There's not many countries that, that have that requirement, but America does. So so we still have to stay connected with our annual tax return, and we pay taxes in the U.S. But uh, And we, we're taxpayers in Mexico. So I have a Mexican corporation, which is, it's interesting because just knowing what's happening in the world and particularly in the U.S., and particularly with the, we, you know, the border crisis is like all you hear about immigrants trying to come into the U.S. Well, it's very interesting because Mexico as a country is very protective of their residents. So in other words, you can't take a job away from a Mexican citizen. A foreigner cannot come to Mexico and just do anything. There's there's only a few employment opportunities for Americans. They can't be a bartender. They can't be. They can't take away the job of a local, which is really interesting. Given where we are, is that they're pouring into the U.S. and and the U.S. does allow to some degree. I mean, they kind of look the other way with the the immigration, which is a whole other topic. But but Mexico is very protective of its citizens. So yes, you have to get um, your residency. You have to get a work visa. There's only certain things you can do here. Now you can own the business. And even if you start a Mexican corporation, you have to have a Mexican citizen as a partner. That's a requirement of a, of a Mexican LLC. So, so they have kind of all these baked in protectionism which I think is right, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm for that, uh, and, and I respect it, and we, we do everything by the law here. But it, it's really interesting when you think about the broad base, you know, between America and Mexico and, and other people trying to get into America. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a process. It's, it's not that difficult. Immigration is, is immigration. I mean, you've, you're going to be – they stand in line for you. OK, when we when we had to go to the immigration, get our passports, had to get our pictures for our uh, immigration cards, someone goes there, waits there and lets you know when it's your turn. As far as buying a home in the Mexican Constitution, foreigners cannot own real estate in what they call the restricted zone. 
And the restricted zone is 30 miles from the coast and 30 miles from the border. So it's all the things you'd want to own if you're a foreigner. And, and that's in their Mexican constitution. So uh, rather than amend their constitution, when NAFTA happened, um, they created a methodology by which you can own inside of a trust with a Mexican bank. So you own the beneficiary rights of a trust inside of a Mexican bank. So that was the workaround to allow foreigners to actually buy all this real estate. And it's obviously working because 80% of the people that are, live in our neighborhood are American. So it's routine. That's fascinating. It is, isn't it? And their constitution, and I think part of it is because of their history, because everyone has, you know... The Spanish, the, everyone has conquered Mexico at one time or another. So when they created their constitution, they did it in a preservation type, I guess just logistically, they wanted to protect their citizens. And so that was in their constitution, but they've managed to allow us somehow to sneak in. And you work in real estate once again now? We had no plan. We had zero plan. In fact, like I said, the first months, all we did was have fun and you know, relax and lay on the beach and fish. And, and, but I was, I was always looking for opportunities and real estate is one of the few things that Americans can do. Um, so that, you know, aside from starting a business, I, I started by looking at, um, real estate brokerages because I had always been a broker in Texas 35 years. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll own the company and, and practice real estate and have agents work you know, under me. So that was really kind of the the first formulation of a plan was that we would do that. And uh, then I met one of the a friend of mine from Houston. And this goes back to people who you know is one of my very good friends from Houston was friends with the developer of this community. Um, they had been single and friends back in Houston. He said, "Hey, I want you to go meet this friend of mine. He's building houses down there or something. You should go meet him." And his name was Ron Hatfield, and he was the founder of basically Villas de Mar, Spiritu, Inside of Palmy. He's this legend of a guy, which I didn't know at the time, by the way. I mean, when Sam said, you know, he made the connection, he made the, you know, he said, he told Ron, you need to meet my friend Michael. And uh, he's originally from Houston, so we, I made an appointment with him. You know, I come, I sit on this big office. This guy's obviously somebody. Uh, I go in, I meet Ron Hatfield, and he's he's a Texan, and we hit it off immediately. We had very similar resumes. Uh, we knew a lot of the same people from Houston. We immediately hit it off, and he said, "Hey, I want you to you know come and join our executive team." Um, and that was the beginning of the uh, you know where I still am today. I'm I'm on the executive team of Delmar Development. I started the real estate company Del Delmar Real Estate. I was the founding member of that for him. Uh, we've built probably 15 homes together. I've been an investor here, um, so it's just you know the, the it could not have been better. It was a great summary of my entire career. It was as if I was made for this spot. So. You know, I'm selling, you know, three to $30 million houses, um, build, I'm back in the building business. You know, my passion is architecture and, and meeting and dealing with people. And so, uh, you know, it, it was as if it was purposely made. 
And so I, I don't, there's something to this universe. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, I think you kind of make your own luck, but sometimes it doesn't Things align. To, <laughs> yeah. right, exactly. The stars just aligned. And <laughs> now I'm the number one real estate broker in, in the Southern Baja. Um, I think we sold $330 million of the real estate last year. So it's, it's not only, in fact, Stephanie and I were laying in bed the other night and we were just kind of, you know, summarizing our, our living here. And first of all, we could never have imagined it would be like this. And we've never could have thought that we could have been more successful than I was when I was in Houston, you know, because I thought I, I was really, really doing well. And then to come to a foreign country, land on the beach, uh, and be a super success in, I guess it's, you know, not even, it's 11 years now, is a fairy tale story. And so... Michael, you're living the dream, it has to be said. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because obviously you're not just selling property, you're also selling a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that you feel so passionately about. When you're telling people about Los Cabos and you're kind of giving them the rundown of what it's like and like why they should move, what are the, what are the qualities of the area that seal the deal for people? Well, I, I think it's, again, I'm always about people. I mean, that, that's what I learned from, from my experience and my trip is that inside of this neighborhood, there's 250 homes. And, you know, when you think about these homes, average price are seven or $8 million. And these are third and fourth and fifth homes for who owns them. So you got to let that sink in a little bit. So, so they've got to be worth 50 to 50 plus million that has to be their net worth minimum and so these people are the who's who they're the one percent of the one percent i mean i think we have right now the last count on the forbes list we have eight billionaires that are our neighbors so these people have done extraordinary things in life and they're super interesting and they're just like you and me and they're our neighbors and they are our friends. And so to be able to step into a community with, with that type of, for lack of a better term, brain trust, I mean, iron sharpens iron and, and conversations and, you know, just understanding, having an understanding of what they've done in a, in a lifetime um, is pretty extraordinary to be around that. And uh, it's, it's very stimulating for the brain and to hang out with these folks. And then we've become very good friends. So we try in the summertime, we travel to see them, whether it's in Nashville or LA or Aspen. So we're, you know, we, there's friends of ours that have a yacht in the Bahamas. And so these people are living their best life and we're, you know, kind of living above what we deserve. You know, I mean, we're, we're right here with them. And, and uh, so I think that means it's very meaningful to people that have, have reached that level of success because wherever their hometown is, there's not a lot of people like them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a density of wealth. And, and I hate to use the word wealth because it's, it's really about success. You know, to me, that's how I categorize it. I mean, I don't measure, you know, by money, but these people have done extraordinary things. And I think that it's not easy for them to find a community of people just like them. 
So talk me through what a typical day in your life is like. <laughs> like ah, what do you okay. what do you love to do in Cabo when you're not working? <laughs> uh, my favorite thing is that we we bought a boat about a year and a half ago. And that is my, I love getting on. First of all, I'm a water person, as evidenced by the fact that I was driven to, to the beach by this crazy trip. But being on the water, I value a lot. I mean, it's, it's experiential to, to be out in the Sea of Cortez amongst whales and the marine life and seals and mantas and, you know, just being out. It's amongst nature. Uh, and I don't think there's any better way to see it. And uh, there's 1,200 miles of coastline on the Baja. So we, we take a trip from San Jose, we usually get on our boat. We go down to San Lucas, which is about 20 miles, and we'll drop anchor, go in by Panga, have lunch on the beach, you know, cruise back. We'll snorkel, swim, go watch for whales. That that's what we do on Saturday and Sunday. So when I'm not working, that's that's what we're doing. We're on the boat, uh, entertaining our friends and having fun. Oh, that sounds like heaven. I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, come. All you have to, I mean, I'm, I'm giving you my best pitch to, for you to, to come to Cabo. And uh, by like the way, a... you have a friend in Cabo. And uh, <laughs> I'm, like I said, I'm pretty well connected here. So, um, you know, please take advantage of that. We, we want everybody. We're, we're kind of like the, um, you know, the ambassadors now. So we, we feel an obligation to, to convince everybody to try Cabo. Speaking of which, <laughs> what kind of things do you know about Cabo that a tourist wouldn't necessarily know, but you feel like they should? Well, I, I, when I travel, I don't want to be a tourist. Okay. I want to live like a local. So the value of what I can share is how to live like a local, you know, because we do, that's our, that's our lifestyle. So so we know the places that are not on the, the the tourist list, and and that's the way we as as tourists that's the way we like to be. I don't I'm not much on you know tour guides and you know going with a bunch of people from place to place. I want to meet people and I want to sit down in their kitchen and I want to see how they live and. And so I think that that's what we can share, um, that what I'd want people to know about Cabo is get off the, the, the main tourist location. Like, it's really interesting because when, when uh, cruise ships come in, and I think this is true about cruise ships, okay? So I, I hope you're not, I hope I'm not offending anybody that would be a cruise master, but cruise ships generally offload in the worst part of town right? I mean, it's kind of an industrial offload. And so what I see is people get off these cruise ships and they kind of, they don't get very far away from, from wherever they were dropped off. And, and I think that and if you, you, if you take that one step further and say that that's perhaps true of a lot of tourists is that wherever they land, whether it's a hotel or that's, they kind of don't get out. I would say, leave the hotel behind you know, go out in the desert, go to Toto Santos, go to La Rivera, go to, you know, all these destinations that no one knows about that are magical. And, and you, you will be the only tourist there. And to me, that's, 
that's the magic of of the southern baja is it's it's not you know the nightlife or and there's some amazing it's it's a it's a food town so there's some amazing restaurants in in this and i'm all about that but but doing the other other things you know take a boat get on excursions excursions yes do those things don't fall into the trap of of a a very small uh, semicircle or wherever you land. What's like the cool part of town to stay in, would you say? Well, guys, I think cool is defined, you know, differently by different people. So, I mean, some people would, if you fish, if you're a fisherman, you're going to go out of San Lucas. Okay. If you're a party animal, you're going to go to San Lucas. You know, if you're a culture person, you're going to go to San Jose. Um, so I think whatever your definition of cool is, I mean, my favorite place is the one and only Palmia Hotel. And the reason I say that is it's the last iconic hotel. All the other old historic hotels have been torn down. It's the last, it's the Grand Dame and, and it feels like Mexico. And I think that's a big mistake that people make when they come to Cabo is, is if they stay in the Montage or Las Ventanas, or, and these are five-star resorts. I'm not saying they're not great, but they don't have the charm of Mexico. And the one and only Palmillo Hotel was built in 1957. And it was originally really somebody's home. It was Christina and Rod Rodriguez's home, and they would host like Bing Crosby and Desi Arnaz and all the people that came out of LA, they would come down, they would stay in this hotel. And it was originally only 15 rooms. So it was their house and 15 guests. And so you stayed with the owners and they were, he was the son of a Mexican president. Um, she was this gregarious, beautiful lady and the way that they would entertain their guests. I mean, that's, that's the warmth of Mexico. And so it's grown now, the one and only has grown into, you know, 170 rooms, but they've kept the, it feels like Mexico. I mean, there's the hand-painted Talavera tiles in the showers and they, they put their hand over their chest whenever they greet you, that they greet you. It's, it's some kind of an Indian ritual or something. When, when you have a guest in your home, you, you touch your heart and bow and all the, the uh, people that work there, that's how they greet you. And because it's it's a custom. I mean, that's that's part of them. And so I just think it's it's the most authentic stay in Cabo. I was supposed to stay there, but my trip got cancelled because of the pandemic. I'm so oh, gutted. You have to come back. I mean, I, I just think it's it's I mean, Rod Rodriguez chose that location. He could have picked anything in the Southern Baja. He picked this location. It's on a point in Palmia, and the, there's very few swimmable beaches in the Southern Baja. And that's another thing that most people don't know is that, you know, because you have a pretty good swell uh, coming in, hitting the beach, there's you really there's very few places you can swim. In fact, there's only four swimmable beaches in, in San Jose and Cabo, and the Palmia Hotel is on one of them. So there's there's three other locations, but 
you know, people, when they come, they want to be in the ocean. They want to be, have a connection with the ocean and, and you can do that at, uh, the one and only. And so I, I just think it's the best of everything. It's, it feels like Mexico is charming. You can swim, uh, there's snorkeling. There's, I don't know if you, you know, John George, there's a number of John George. He's a very famous chef in, in New York. There's two of their restaurants are John George, so the food is extraordinary. That that would be a place that I would always recommend. And no one no one's ever been disappointed staying there. That's a good recommendation. It's so nice when you know somebody who lives in a place. I always say that, and I'm sure you probably feel this as well, but that I feel like I live on vacation, or at least I did for the first <laughs> few years. I would say I'm kind of used to New York now. <laughs> it's become like part of the backdrop. But it does it's so nice to see everything through fresh eyes. And then you can also all of your friends and family, when they come and visit, you're like, don't bother doing the Statue of Liberty or whatever. Like, I've, I'll tell you where to go. I know exactly what to do. And it's so nice to share that with people. So thank you for sharing it with our listeners. Oh, um, happy to do so. So to wrap up, if you hadn't taken this trip, how do you think your life would be different now? Wow. Um, hmm. That's a very good question. And I really have no idea. I'd probably still be in Houston. I mean, I'd, I'd probably be in Houston. I'd probably own another home building company. I mean, that's what I knew, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't have deviated from the norms of just, you know, the hustle and bustle of a big city. And, and I'm sure it would have turned out great. Um, but I wouldn't have been here. And so I'm forever grateful the way it did turn out because I, I can't imagine what even second would be. You know, I mean, and and we we're not going anywhere. I mean, we're we're here for the duration. We've this is our home. Uh, our family comes to visit us. I mean, we travel in the summer back into the U.S. Uh, during low season. The time not to come. Don't come to Cabo in August or September because it's hot and stormy. Um, but the other nine, ten months the weather is perfect. But so that's when we depart. We'll, we'll depart in August and we'll, we'll last year we stayed in Corona del Mar. If you ever get a chance to in orange County, um, Southern California, we, we love that. It's great weather. We have friends in Aspen. So we always do the Rockies and, and then we go see my family in Indiana and we always go through Chicago. And so Nashville, we have a lot of friends that are neighbors here that, um, live in Nashville. So we, we travel in Nashville every year. It's just kind of, you know, routine to see our friends. And now, now you've got me thinking, I'm actually going to have to think about that question. I'll have to, I'm a pontificator. So I have to like sort it out and think about it and how things would have been different had we not done this. But, uh, I can't imagine it being any other way than the way it is. Well, thank you so much. You've been a really insightful guest. I can tell, you know, your, your passion for Carbo is, is really infectious and I'm so when are you coming? Have I convinced I know, you? I mean, I've, I've, you have my, you've had my one-hour sales pitch. So <laughs> if I haven't convinced you inside of an hour to come to Cabo, Listen, I'm, I'm I, losing my touch. I've got your email now, Michael. So this <laughs> <laughs> is verbally binding. Well, reach out for sure, for sure. Take take me up on it, please, please do. <laughs> Before we go, do you have a few minutes to do a quick fire round? Sure. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? I would say flight. Flying in a small aircraft, particularly open air, 
Um, I think that's very exciting. It's a danger. Uh, it's, it's an experience that I think everyone should, should do, even if you're afraid of heights. What's the one thing you never, ever travel without? My toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally obsessed with my teeth. I I, I brush my teeth. Everybody will tell you that I'm obsessed about brushing my teeth. So they look great. I would never. Oh, thank you. I would never go anywhere without my toothbrush. (laughs) Top tip for a first time visitor to Cabo. Uh, Don't overpack. It's a very casual place. Swimsuits, flip-flops, t-shirts will get you just about everywhere. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I've been dying to go to Vietnam. And I hear the beaches there are spectacular. Um, So that's where I would go. I'd I'd go there. I'd lay on the beach. uh, Because I may not, I don't know if I'm going to get there or not. I mean, it's a long way. I hate actually long flights uh we went to italy and it was uh you know it's a long way to go and every everywhere we go we always measure it by where we're coming from and we're like okay we just spent the last you know two days traveling this place and it's no better than where we came from so uh you know i would have to teleport probably to get there or australia one of the, I've, I've always kind of wanted to go to australia too so those two places Do you have a recommendation for a podcast, book, or movie to stay entertained on a long journey? Okay. The series, Larry McMurtry is a writer about Texas, and he wrote a book called Lonesome Dove. And either reading it or watching the series is really, really special. It's it's Texas history. Um, He blends uh, reality with fiction. And I think it's perhaps either the best book or the best series I've ever seen. What's it called again? And it's very long. Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. Where, do you know where it's streaming? Is it streaming? Uh, <laughs> I, I, it, it probably, you could probably buy it on Apple Amazon or Netflix. Or yeah, one of those. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you could find it. So we've already covered your favorite hotel in Cabo, but where's your favorite place to eat? Well, right now I'm totally obsessed with a a place called Talay, T-H-A-L-A-Y. And it's at the Montage and it's Thai food. So Thai food in Mexico, (laughs) that's hard to imagine. But it's that's my new obsession. I'm totally obsessed with that restaurant. Thai is my favorite. So And it's a food truck. It's a food truck. It's super simple. It's a food truck, which I kind of like food trucks too. But it's Picnic tables, food truck, and amazing Thai food. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Actually, I want to go to Mackinac Island, which is the northern peninsula of Michigan. That's what that's kind of what I've been thinking about. So that's, that comes to mind first. Uh, and there was a, uh, you should also look up uh, a movie with Christopher Reeves and Jane Seymour. And it's called Somewhere in Time. It's a great movie, by the way. But it was all shot at this resort in Mackinac Island. And there's they don't allow cars on the island. So it's, you know, bicycles, horse-drawn carriages, golf carts. It's pretty, pretty charming. Uh, and I'm dying to go. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of those tips. Wow, You've been so great. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. 
We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.